finding suitable mental health medications can be a challenge. The GeneSight test may help. Did you know that genetics can play an important role in gaining insight on how a person may respond to various medications? Understanding this may help reduce medication trial and error. GeneSight is a genetic test that analyzes variations in DNA. It shows how genes may affect someone's metabolism or response to medications commonly prescribed to treat depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions. Visit GeneSight.com for more information. This is The Jerry Callahan Show. America, not uh, she doesn't wear she doesn't wear cape. She wears a robe. Her name is Catherine Kimball Mizell. She's thirty five years old. She's a uh, a judge in Florida. Where else? Former clerk for Clarence Thomas, appointed by Donald Trump in twenty twenty, approved by the uh, Senate, uh, the Republicans in the Senate. And she is my hero because I'm I'm going on a plane soon. And I was dreading, I'm dreading, you know, flying sucks. We talked about this yesterday. It's just difficult and inconvenient. And they've turned uh, at least one stewardess per flight into a little mask Nazi who uh, <laughs> makes sure it doesn't slip below your nose. Uh, just like when they say, you know, put your seat up and put your tray table up. And some of them take great pleasure in that. They, they took the job so they could boss people around and tell them what to do. And uh, this just added an element uh, that they thoroughly enjoyed saying, your mask is slipping, sir. When you're eating your pretzels, or your peanuts, they make sure you put the mask up. Well, they can't do that now because of the great judge, Catherine Kimball Mizell who um, struck down the national mask mandate on airplanes and other public transportation, citing the exceeds citing that it exceeds the authority of U.S. health officials. She didn't say it doesn't work, which it doesn't. We all know. We, we've talked about it for two years now. A little cloth mask doesn't do a damn thing. It is strictly theater. It is strictly control. She didn't say these stupid things don't work. She just said that the CDC, that Rochelle Walensky and, and by extension, uh, Fauci, do not have the authority. I love that because these people are, have relished that authority, that made up authority for two years now. They love it and they don't want to let it go. And if you uh, heard Jen Stocky yesterday, the White House has not given up. They still recommend masks. Can I just say something very obvious off the top here? We're going to get to, we got a lot to get to. We're going to get to Casey Sherman, uh, author, um, showman, Casey Sherman. We're going to talk to Casey about the show. He's got, he's got a great new book coming out and a, a live show at the Wilbur. What kind of loser does a live show at the Wilbur, by the way? But um, Casey, get to Casey and we'll get to the latest from our dementia riddled president. And this might not be the most embarrassing thing he said, but it has to be the most embarrassing visual, the most embarrassing optic because of who co-starred in it with him. But first, the the mask mandate. The White House comes out and says, we still think you should wear masks. And nobody ever answers the question, Ironhead. Nobody ever says why. We've gone over this a thousand times. I'm telling you, 
I was ahead of the curve on this because I've said it before. I have a, a friend who's a doctor. Hell, he used to work with Fauci and he still likes him, but he knows he's out of his mind, uh, drunk with power. And he told me almost two years ago, you don't have to worry about COVID on airplanes. And I was like, what? It's you know, a little confined space, people breathing all over you. Just, the air is constantly circulating. Ventilation, the air, it, it, it takes care of that. There's no danger. You're not going to get the virus on a plane. I was like, wow, that's good to know. I think this was probably uh, the spring of 2020, maybe June, May or June. And since then, nobody has, has made that pronouncement. Nobody said, you know, you might have to worry about it at home where most people get COVID or, you know, on a bus, a trailways bus. But if you're on a plane, you're good. It didn't matter. Like with many of the, the restrictions and the measures and the lockdowns and the shutdowns, it didn't have any basis in science. This had no rational reason, but they did it anyway. Because first of all, people were paranoid. They thought it was a dangerous place, so they cooperated. And secondly, again, these these bureaucrats love the control. So they said, got to have a mask on in a plane. Can't let it slip below your nose. And by the way, you must maintain social distance in the airport. You got to stay six feet away from the person who's going to be sitting in your lap in 10 minutes when you board the plane. Again, based in science, obviously. But they love it. Obviously, the Biden regime loves it. The media loves it. They can't get enough of the mask mandates. Uh, they can't get enough of just constant control, constant COVID paranoia. And I think this person, this wonderful, wonderful person, Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell, it just had enough. She just said they don't have the right to do that. The CDC can't tell people traveling whether they need a mask. Because let's let's face it, you can wear one if you want. I don't I don't want to break any news here, but you can wear one forever, all day, all night. To bed in the shower, you can wear it everywhere. No one will stop you. In fact, I, I've seen people doing that. By the way, I got a, uh, a report, a first person report. I went to the marathon, two runners. I saw two runners who uh, wore masks. I swear to God, I, I didn't heckle them. I told you I was going to heckle them. I didn't. I just, I mean, I was at Penmore Square, which is like mile 25. So they were pretty, they, they had a pretty good uh, day to get to that point. And they were still wearing masks. I took a picture of one of them, but I kind of feel guilty because one was a guy, one was a woman. And I thought, you know, they've, they've done more than I did today. So they look silly. Uh, everybody knows they look silly, but some people want to look silly. They, they wear their masks outside. They wear it by themselves walking in the woods and they will continue to wear them on airplanes despite my new hero uh, repealing the mandate. And it is another one of those things where I am having a blast reading the, um, the tweets. And I find this remarkable. Even I know liberals are crazy and they, they have this authoritarian tendency. They don't believe in freedom and liberty. They want to control everything you do. But even they, aren't they tired of it? Aren't they tired of the pretend, you know, thing with the theater, with the mask. I'm looking at, there was a few uh, journalists who were tweeting about how you know, this was judicial overreach, which is just so rich coming from lefties. But this is from a state rep in Massachusetts. It went viral. Her name is Lindsay Sabadosa. Lindsay Sabadosa 
tweeted, Today, a federal judge called it overreach for the United, for U.S. health officials to require masks on airplanes and other public transit. And no matter how you feel about masks, you should be really, really concerned that the courts are effectively taking away power from the federal government. All right, Lindsay, I don't want to, you know, I don't sound condescending, but the power of the federal government, you're talking about bureaucrats, Rochelle, no one elected Rochelle Lewinsky, Walensky, nobody elected Tony Fauci. These people were out of control and it took this judge, God bless her, to put them in their place. And these people having a meltdown. And, and the amazing thing is, they can keep wearing their mask. They can wear two. They can wear the gas mask and the face shield. And they can wear one of those hazmat suits. No one is telling you, you can't wear a mask. No one. So go ahead, wear one. Why do they give a damn if, if I wear one? It's like going to the beach and getting upset if the guy next to you doesn't put on sunscreen. I mean, okay, he could, he could get cancer. Sure. That's his choice. If I, if you think masks work and you wear it to prevent COVID, what do you care if I do? Um, I know I'm going off on this tangent This that I've been saying. This is what I've been saying for two years. It's just so tiresome. And it takes, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy this moment for because uh, you know, it doesn't happen enough with these tyrants we have in the White House and in most and many governors' Uh, offices and mayors, and now we got somebody who steps up and does the right thing, and God bless her. Catherine Kim, not a bad-looking woman either. No, she's very, very pretty. Five years old, pretty. Not a, there's another judge in Florida who's like an Instagram hit, like a model, like a smoke show. Not the same judge, but they got, they got, they, they got some good judges down there in Florida, including this woman, and I just want to salute her today. As I head to the airport, maskless, I would feel like there's going to be an issue. Like they're going to say, you need to mask. I'm saying, no, I don't. <laughs> I saw the order from the judge. And what, what do you do if they say, yeah, we, we still make, we still think you have to wear a mask. They probably do like a, a, a jet blue says you need to mask up and this person doesn't, right, but right. That, that's what will happen. So, and then if you don't, they kick you off and you're screwed. So it'll probably be, and, and we can get to Kelly O'Donnell asked the question of, uh, of Jen Psaki yesterday said, you know, she, of course, Kelly O'Donnell wearing her mask in the, in the media room, the uh, briefing room and saying, are you afraid that it'll create, you know, tension or conflict? What it hasn't already the way it works now. You don't think we've seen enough tension or conflict when they're making two year olds, you know, autistic two year olds wrap their face or kicking them off the plane. Yeah. I'd say we've had a share of conflict for the last two years, Kelly. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to get worse. There will be incidents, hopefully not involving me, but there will be some uh, some conflict between people who don't wear, and then there'll be that, you know, that airline or that stewardess who says you got to do it. And there'll be people going, no, I don't. And then what would you pull out your phone and say, here's the judge's order. They still have you though. You know, they're still in control. They can kick you off. They can ruin your life or ruin your day at least and say, sorry, middle of nowhere. You can't, you're not flying. See ya. But uh, we'll see how that goes. Can we play? Uh, do we have that Kelly O'Donnell asking the question? of Jen Psaki. And then Jen Psaki says, good question, Kelly, about why isn't this going to create more problems? The fact that you are allowing people to breathe free, 
breathe the, these free flowing air on a plane or a bus or whatever in an airport, the, the mainstream media thinks that's going to create problems. There's, you know what? There's no way this could ever end to the satisfaction of these nuts. They would never, they'll never be happy. They never, they're just like Fauci. They do not want COVID to end, but uh, listen to these two uh, go back and forth and, and, and lament the end of the mask mandate. Uh, back on the mask issue, as the debate is going on about next steps, yeah. is there any concern in the White House that this issue, now that there are some Americans who are aware of this ruling by the Florida judge, that it could prompt some of the tensions we've seen on airplanes in recent months until there's a resolution? Yeah, uh, Kelly, it's a great question. Obviously, what we're trying to do, what we would encourage is calm in all cases. And because this ruling just came out this afternoon, I know the objective of everybody involved and all the necessary authorities and government is to make a determination about next steps as quickly as possible. So uh, that's certainly our hope, and, and we want to do everything we can to prevent that. And then, then Ducey says, why do we, why can we go maskless in the press room, but they can't go maskless in a plane? Which is another great question. It's just like in New York City, where everybody can go without masks except two to five-year-olds. They still have to wrap their faces two, three, four, five-year-olds, but not, you know, Kyrie, who's unvaccinated, or, uh, you know, Aaron Judge, who I believe is unvaccinated, they can go maskless, but your two-year-old can't. It's just madness. It never made any sense, and they still don't want to let it go. They still don't want to say, well, you know, it's been two years, time to breathe the air, but it's a good day. We're not going to, you know, not going to nitpick. It's a good day in America because of this heroic judge, Catherine Kimball Mizell. Maybe she'll be on, you know, when DeSantis is in the White House and he gets a Supreme Court pick, maybe he has to, maybe he'll have to decide between these hot, two hotties in Florida. Yeah, maybe. Can't go, can't go wrong. That'd be okay with me. Uh, you know what we're going to miss? You know what we're going to miss when we have President DeSantis? We're going to miss moments like, I don't know, his wife, Casey DeSantis, who's not a pretend doctor. She's a breast cancer survivor, uh, mother of two, I think two, uh, very uh, protective and supportive of her husband. And when they do the uh, egg Easter egg roll, by the way, why didn't they do it on Easter? Was Joe busy at one of his beach houses? So they do it today. And somebody, I don't know who, somebody must've seen this coming said, we're going to have Joe Biden hanging out with the Easter bunny. This could get, <laughs> this could get dicey. And so they, I guess it's tradition that other residents have read to kids as part of this event, but don't, couldn't someone have raised their hand and said, you know, maybe this is the time, the place for, for, for uncle Joe to be reading some kid's book about bunnies to, to the, or attempting to read it. But do we have, uh, oh, this is uh, the, oh, this is a funny one. We got the video of the, uh, the Easter bunny literally directing directing Joe Biden to where to go. You know what happened right there just before the Easter Bunny got there? Somebody asked a question about Afghanistan, about the disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan. And I think Joe was going to actually answer it, but we can't have that. No, no, can't have the president. We've got 13 uh, brave warriors killed in Kabul. Can't have him, you know, taking any accountability. So the Easter Bunny shuffles him away. Doesn't that seem like not in, is the Easter Bunny a woman? Must be right. Yeah, that has to be a Secret Service person in there, right? 
You think you think that's because it's got to be somebody. You can't. It's some just schmuck from some uh, outfit that does you know kids kids show. You can't say you know. Could you go get the president? He's that's, about to say yeah, something stupid. That's what I mean. Yeah. But do we have uh, Jill and Joe together reading? Because man, this is uncomfortable. Um, I I I call it elder abuse. We've seen a lot of elder abuse from Doctor Jill, but this. And again, it's just, it's just reading kids. Not, we're not talking about, you know, nuclear war. That's coming. That's probably, you know, tomorrow or next week when he decides to go to nuclear war. But in this case, he's just reading the kids. And just that is extremely uncomfortable. And you watch it. And once again, you say, he's just not up for this. He's just, he's just not supposed to be on this job. He's not supposed to be in that seat. He's supposed to be at home in one of his mansions in, in Delaware, on the dock, on the deck, on the patio, in a chair, you know, having a cup of soup, and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, whatever, a, a cup of tea, maybe, maybe a, you know, a glass of wine, watching you know, Wheel of Fortune, or watching some old black and white movie, going to bed, sleeping, whenever, you know, taking a walk. That's what you do when you're 80 and you're cognitively impaired. You don't sit there and, and lead the free world. But let's, I'm not, I'm not going to laugh. I'm not going to laugh. This is serious. This is elder abuse, but watch, let's watch Dr. Jill and Joe attempting to read to the kids. Okay. So I'm going to quickly read brown bear, brown bear. So you're all not soaking wet. And they're not going to let me read at all. <laughs> I'll let you here. You can start us off. Can you, oh, here, Can I I'll read let backwards? Read the first page. Go ahead. Brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? I see a bird looking at me. Now you got it. Okay. <sighs> yellow duck, yellow duck, what do you see? I see a blue horse looking at me. Blue horse. Hold on. <laughs> it sounds like an air raid symbol in the back, too. There is, there, you know, there has to be some mercy here at some point. And mer- there has to be someone who says, since a Jill, I know, you know, you think you're pulling this off. You think you're convincing people. He's just uncle Joe, nice old man. It ain't working. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's just not, it's, it's just not presidential. And uh, I know we do this every day, uh, but it's important. I mean, all, he's the friggin' president. He's the president. We're sitting here watching him read a book upside down to the kids and saying, and then, as always, it says, they told me. They told me I could read. They told me not to take questions. Who is they? Who is they? That'll be the you know the question that we ask for the rest Ever. of time. Yes. When we talk about the Biden regime and the, you know, the year 2020 or 2022, we talk about they. That'll be, they'll be like books. Actually, they won't be books because it might make them look bad. But maybe, you know, maybe there'll be some books from, uh, you know, some conservative journalists about who is they? Who are they? Who are the ones calling the shots, telling them when to take questions, telling them when to walk away, telling them to shake hands to the imaginary guy over there? That's always important, too. You want to shake hands with your imaginary friends. But um, anyway, before we get to Casey, I wanted to mention the uh, marathon. I used to hate the marathon. I told you that yesterday when I was younger and didn't really see the point. And now I love it. And I don't go when the winners finish. I don't care. You know, which Kenyan won? Kenyan won, right? I'm sure. Just like you predicted. You bet on that, right? <laughs> yeah, I, sh- I should have. <laughs> and they, and they're amazing. They're amazing. Whatever athletes and runners and, and, the, but they don't, 
it doesn't look painful for them. The thing I like about the marathon is it's painful and people overcome it. And I like to watch from, I've done been to the finish line. That's difficult. A lot of security, a lot of people, you can't, you know, move around. It's, it's hard, but you just go to, like I said, I go to Kenmore square and sit there and watch people just kind of staggering toward the finish line. They're my, they're, they, you get the limpers and then you get the leaners, you know, the leaners, the ones that lean one way yeah. and they kind of sway and there's only whatever it is, a mile, something to go. So they're probably going to finish, but they are in such anguish and they do it voluntarily. It's amazing. They put themselves through this hell and they do it for fun. The the top three for men's was Evans Chebet from Kenya, yep. uh, Lawrence Chirono from Kenya, and wow. uh, Benson Kipruto from Kenya. <laughs> wow, big shot. You know what? All three of them were halfway home on the Kenyan shuttle by the time the normal people who, you know, just test their own endurance, test their strength, their will, their mental toughness. When those people come limping and wobbling down though that's what I like about it. And I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a softy. I cheer and yell and whistle and just try to get them to the finish line. It's impressive. It's amazing. It's like every single one of them has to be asking, why did I do this? What is going on? And then whatever, an hour later, they got a cold beer in front of them and a big, big, cheeseburger and, and they're sitting at one of the, I, I just rode my bike all around there and all the restaurants are packed with runners and, and they look, you know, like they went through hell, but they look happy. I love it. I love it. I like the spirit. The highlight this year, if you haven't been paying attention was Henry Richard, 20 year old Henry Richard finished the marathon and he looked good. I mean, he looked like it could have, I don't know what his time was, but he was not straggler. He was not a straggler. Uh, he is the brother of uh, Martin Richard, who was killed in the bombing nine years ago. Uh, um, Jane Richard, his sister, lost a leg, and he he looks like a runner. His father was a runner, looked like a runner. Uh, but uh, Henry looked like a stud because he finished, hugged everybody, very emotional, and then did interviews. He did not look like uh, it destroyed him the way it does with some people. You know what's amazing to me is I say, you know, these I, I take my hat off to him. I salute these people. But there is a fair amount of not fat, but just out of shape looking people, you know, not real big fat. So but kind of shape. And then it's people who are this old people. And it's just people who don't look like runners and I'm at the 25 mile mark. So maybe they didn't run the whole way. Maybe they did some walking, but I am just blown away by their toughness, their endurance. It's a great event. Again, it doesn't start till two hours after the winners are done and showered and, gone home to wherever they're from. That's when the normal people who just are doing it because it's a personal challenge. It's something they want to do and they want to overcome and check off their bucket list. And that's pretty cool. A pretty cool event. The weather was perfect. I think for runners cause it was cold. Uh, but I don't know. I, you know, I don't know when, when the last person finished, but you know, like 10 hours, I don't even know how long it takes to walk the whole way. If you walk the entire way, how long it would take, but, even that takes some mental toughness, but I enjoyed it. I, uh, I like the atmosphere. It's a good thing. And I can't believe I used to make fun of these people because it's like I always say when I was a kid, high school, maybe you did this too, Ironhead. We made fun of the cross country runners and the golfers. And now that's all I do. I run and I golf and they laugh at me and they mock me and they kick my ass. <laughs> you know, when I run, I run a 5K, the skinny guy going by me, the one I made fun of in high school for running cross country. 
And then when I play golf, the guy who played when he was a little kid and played in high school, I didn't play till I was, till I was married. What a mistake that was <laughs> not the marriage the waiting. Um, and they kicked my ass. So the guys I made fun of in high school are laughing at me. They are definitely getting the last laugh, but, uh, uh, you have any desire to do the marathon someday, Ironhead? I sure don't. I like the golfing no. part, though. Overrunning. You'd have to give up smoking and yeah. probably lose. I mean, like I said, there were some guys who weren't in great shape, but those are the toughest ones. The ones that are running and you look at them and they're not runners and they're big and they're heavy. And those guys made it up Heartbreak Hill, made it up all the hills. Those are the ones who really impressed me, I have to say. But... All right, let's get to Casey Sherman. Let's get to our sponsors, and then we're going to get to Casey, our friend who is a author, a renowned true crime author. He's got a book he'll tell you all about coming out this summer. He's had a great – I say this about Casey. I'll say it again when he joins us, that uh, he has the best ideas, you know. did a book about mm. Whitey Bulger, and it wasn't about Whitey Bulger. It was about the hunt for Whitey after he went on the lamb. 16 years of running from the law. Where was he? How did he get away? How do you main, main, stay free, uh, stay one step ahead of the law? It's a great idea, very suspenseful. And plus it has the uh, the story of uh, his murder in prison, which is pretty intense. They got all the details of that, where he is beaten to death with uh, like a sock full of uh, I nuts and bolts or something. They beat him with a sock full of, which, have you ever seen the movie Sean Penn? Uh, Sean Penn and I forget who else in the in. Uh, Bad boys. He's a prisoner, and he beats a guy with a sock full of uh, coke cans. That's how that was his weapon of choice. That's what they did to Whitey and killed him. And I got all the details in this book. Plus, he's got fairly recently did the the last days of John Lennon, which is a fascinating story. He actually talked or emailed with with uh, uh, Paul McCartney. We can get into that with KC, but first. Let me tell you about, what am I doing here? I got, uh, what do you want me to do here? Siempre. Let's do some, then we'll, <laughs> then we'll get to Callahan Coffee. Let's do Siempre Tequila. You want to start with the tequila. That's true. You know? And, well, you, you go either way. But this is, uh, Siempre Tequila's awesome stuff. It's the new spring drink, our new summer drink. Then, you know, when you have to sober up, you'll get to the Callahan Coffee. All right, let's talk about Siempre Tequila. I got your new spring drink here. This is perfect for spring and summer. Siempre was founded in 2015 by Alex and Monica. They took their life savings and started making tequila. It wasn't much, but they made it count. Uh, they figured if it was their favorite drink, the world might agree. Besides, it had to be good because they knew they'd be drinking a lot of it. Well, after they won a few awards and a ton of hard work, Siempre has grown into over 20 markets around the world. It's won multiple awards. It's made traditionally in a small Mexican town called Tequila. How cool is that? Siempre means always. The rose on the bottle symbolizes Beauty in both life and death, good and bad. It's 100% blue Weber agave from both the highlands and lowlands of Jalisco, Mexico. They use volcanic spring water to make a siempre. Famous people drink it, but there's never going to be a celebrity owner or a celebrity spokesman. Siempre wants you to be your own celebrity. So ask for siempre at your local wine and spirit store or find it online at shop.com. SiempreTequila.com. That is Siempre, S-I-E-M-P-R-E, shop.SiempreTequila.com. All right, we've been telling you about uh, our big announcement, our big first branded product, Callahan Coffee. 
Maybe people are getting sick of it. Too bad. There it is on the screen. If you're watching at home, Ironhead got a old pound in his hand. Yeah, it's not the first time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know what? We didn't want to half-ass it. We did want to do it right. And I think we did. We partnered with a local roaster in Waltham Mass to create a custom blend specified to our liking. And I think your liking. How are you liking your uh, listeners? People who buy it and try it, you're going to like it too. It's a good dark roast. It combines beans from three continents to create a unique natural coffee flavor with rich with chocolate and sweet with caramel taste notes. I didn't really notice those things, but I like it because it's good and rich and strong. It's a full body dark roast uh, with the most, the most premium beans available. You can also get a uh, bug the chug mug on the website too. Just go to callahancoffee.com, callahancoffee.com. We love it. And we know you will too. You can support us and you can get a great product. Mother's day, father's day, whatever, just to, have it in your house and drink it. You're going to love it. CallahanCoffee.com and click on the link in our social media bios to order your coffee today. All right, let's get to Casey. Uh, joining us now is prolific author uh, Casey Sherman, our old friend. Casey, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Always a pleasure. I, uh, we will get to your uh, show, your, coming, your, your live show coming up at the Wilbur Theater next week. But I don't even know where to begin with you. You are, you are amazing, just back-to-back bestsellers, one after another. But the thing, I want to start with kind of a, kind of a stupid question, because the thing that his strikes me every time I look at your bio and look at uh, your list of bestsellers is uh, – you have you are the best at one thing. The you come up with the best ideas. Every time you do a book, I say, "What a great idea!" And I guess you know, since I have you on, I'll give you all the credit and none of your uh, co-conspirators like uh, Dave Wedge or John Patterson. But uh, right. is uh, how do you do it? How do you come up with these great ideas? Yeah, I mean, it takes a while. You're only as good as the stories you tell. Right. You know, sometimes they, they come to you right away. Sometimes you have to really germinate on the topic a little bit and think, okay, is this, you know, is this a magazine article or can we really go deep on this on this story and uh, flush it out into a, you know, full 300-page uh, narrative? I look at story now. There's so many venues, so many uh outlets platforms with you know hulu and netflix and everything else and i think of you and i say you know uh, casey sherman's got a better idea than that i'm watching now the uh the story of uber you know the the foundation of uber and it's just redundant it's kind of the same story every week i'm giving up on it and uh i look at some of the, the the books you've written the magazine articles and i say casey could do better than that i loved my favorite is hunting whitey and I feel like I've read a bunch of books on Whitey Bulger and the Bulger, the Bulger brothers. Yeah. But you came up with the idea of doing the uh, Bulger on the run, the 16 years that Bulger was on the run in hiding. The FBI was tracking him. And then you have all the details of how they track him down and corner him and take him in uh, into custody. And then he goes to prison and he meets an appropriate end at the hands of a couple of thugs who take him out in his prison cell and it's, and I've recommended this to a fact I was just looking for it on my bookshelf. And of course I don't, you know, I don't know if you have this problem, but all my favorite books are missing. Cause I give them, oh, sure. you got to <laughs> read this and then you don't get them back. Exactly. The books, the books I have on my shelf, they're not great, but the ones that aren't here are the, <laughs> are the best ones, including hunting whitey, which uh, 
that's got to be, I mean, do you sell all these to Hollywood? Is that going to be a movie? Well, yeah. So, so Hunting the White Eagle is a really unique uh, uh, project. The book did really well. We had a, a unique way into the story. You know, it's not the Johnny Depp, Whitey Bulger. It is, you know, Woody Harrelson, who was connected to our project about a year ago. Uh, you know, an aging gangster with his mall on the run, trying to stay one step ahead of the feds while his body's breaking down around him. And with this project, I had Terry winter uh signed up to write the miniseries woody harrelson who gave us a verbal uh agreement to play whitey bulger and i think okay we're gonna walk this right into hbo and get a limited series deal but we were you know hollywood is very unusual to say the least we're stuck in the middle of the pandemic when we brought that to market uh hollywood has all these mandates as, as you know jerry so it's all about diversity in hollywood right now and uh which which i get and it makes sense but they're trampling over great stories and our our title is hunting whitey and people just couldn't get their arms or heads around it so what we thought was a surefire win in hollywood we've had to bring back um and put it back in the lab and just germinated for a little bit longer before we try to sell it again. But it's a great story that's never been told. And the one thing I love about that that book too, Jerry, is that we get access to 70 letters that Bulger wrote in his own hand. So when he's being arrested by Scott Gariola in Santa Monica, these are Bulger's words. Bulger's talking about how he's going down that elevator that day and how he is recognizing that um, there are marks on the floor almost like a stage. And when he saw those, he knew 16 years was over. And uh, you can't, so you can't get the movie made because there's not enough diversity. You need some transgender uh, characters. Well, no, I, I just think, it, again, I, it, it's not that because we have a strong female lead, Noreen Gleason, who was the FBI agent who said, you know what? You're not finding them with these guys in the Boston office. You're never going to find Whitey Bulger. I'm going to bring in two ringers from the outside. We're going to track that asshole down. And that's what they eventually do. And uh, some see, I, I I had high hopes for Patriots Day because I read the book. It's terrific. You and, and Wedge writing about uh, the marathon bombing. And then when I heard, you know, Mark Wahlberg was playing the lead, and there was a big budget behind it. The movie, to say the least, I didn't I didn't hate it as much as some people, but the movie, to say the least, is disappointing because it's silly. I mean. Mark Wahlberg, I don't know if he insisted on this, but he had to be involved in everything. And it just stretched, you know, the truth. Yeah. It became kind of kind of a cartoon after a while. What's it like to write a really good book about a really important topic, especially around here, and then see it to see what Hollywood did to it? I mean, that, that project in particular, I go hot and cold on that movie. I don't watch it often because I get pissed off when, when, I, when I see it. I mean, Boston Strong was a multi-layered book. You had your uh, law enforcement. You had your first responders. You had your ER nurses and doctors saving lives. It should have been done like the movie Traffic, where you had these converging storylines. But, you know, when we first started to uh, uh, gain traction in Hollywood for this project, we had Casey Affleck. We had Bradley Cooper, who wanted to play Danny Keeler, who was the lead character that eventually Wahlberg played so to speak but then when markets involved you know you know what it's going to be you know it's going to be kind of a cops and robbers 
type of story. And I felt the same way you did, Jerry. I'm sitting at the world premiere and I've got Big Poppy a couple seats next to me. And I'm thinking to myself, if he shows up at the carjacking scene in Cambridge, I'm going to lose it. You know, he's just patrolling. He's like Batman patrolling the streets of Boston looking for the bad guys. And, and he stumbles upon them with great luck. And it wasn't necessary. I mean, obviously it's an amazing story and an intense story. You have the manhunt and everything else. And you're going, why does everything have to revolve around Wahlberg? I guess that's, you know, because of Wahlberg. But I thought you were going to say that he was going to come out on the field at Fenway and say, this is our fucking city. Yeah. I mean, if, if Wahlberg yeah. did that, <laughs> that'd be a little bit much. Well, he was in the he was in the runway at Fenway, so he was very close by. There was not a scene that that he didn't dominate in some way, shape, or form. And I remember when we uh, had lunch with Peter Berg, Dave Wedge, and I, and uh, and Peter Berg kind of rewrote the script and added all those monologues for Wahlberg. Some of them I thought worked. Some of them I thought really were kind of corny. And uh, uh, Peter is sharing this one story with us about um, that he had written in the script about how Wahlberg's character picks up a severed arm, a uh, burning arm, puts it into a pedicab and, and drives it to Boston City Hospital. And, and Berg's very emotional as he's describing this to us. And I'm looking at Dave thinking, what the fuck? And I'm thinking, you know, we got to tell him that nobody lost an arm in the Boston Marathon bombings. There was a pressure cooker bomb, you know, so these were amputations below the knee or otherwise. And it was the only way, once we told him that, we said, look at the survivor community is going to go up in arms if they if you show that in the movie. So he extracted that scene and that was a win you know, for us to keep it as authentic as we could when the Hollywood machine is dominating production. Uh, you know what would have been a better idea instead of calling it, uh, you could call it Patriot's Day, the Kevin Cohen story. Where yeah, yeah, yeah. the hero, you know, the protagonist is, is everywhere all at once. Is I See, I think if I were in your shoes, I'd be say, saying, I'm getting paid for this. I'm going to, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm making out here. I, I, I feel like I wouldn't be that particular. Or uh, Do you get offended? Do you get upset when they change your story? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the change. Obviously, when you're adapting something for film, you know things are going to change. With the finest hours, they made um, creative changes that I thought really worked for the movie and made it yeah. even more powerful than, than than it was. But with Patriot States, it's interesting because we were the li liaison to the survivor community in many respects. So we wanted to make sure that they were okay with some of the changes that we that Hollywood was making. And that includes Sean Collier's family, who we spent a lot of time with. And I know that they had kind of reworked Sean's character a little bit in the film, and they weren't really connecting with people in the Survivor community. Some people on set. Others were amazing with, with, with many of the folks that we've come to know and love over the years. But, by the way, I tell people if you want to see a better movie about the marathon bombing, Stronger, the uh, Jeff Bowman story, very well done. And Jake Gyllenhaal does it an amazing job as uh, as Jeff Bowman. It's it's there's some silly, you know, Hollywood stuff in there, but uh, for the most part much more accurate portrayal particularly of uh, of the survivor community as you say. And we know I know finest hours 
uh, you've said is your bestseller. Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, we've written three editions of The Finest Hours, one for adults, one for teenagers, and another one for six to ten-year-olds. And, you know, it's all about heroism, self-sacrifice, and teamwork. And uh, that story has really spread uh, not only nationally but internationally. It's amazing the audiences that pick up the story, whether it's the movie or the book, uh, almost every day. It's, 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 it, I always look up to the heavens. I say, you know, Bernie Weber was the hero. So see where your story went, man? You know, people really believe in you and believe in what people can do given a little training. And that's a good movie. That's a good movie. I, I don't know how accurate it is, but it's it's. it's it, was, it was about as close to accuracy as Hollywood can do. Oh, yeah. um, they had to make some changes, and again, I thought those changes uh, reflected well on screen. I'm not sure the same thing happened with Patriots Day for sure. And and you did a, a Tom Brady book. You did a Pete Frady's book. But the one I look at, like in the airport or you know in the in the bookstore, and say that was a great idea. Just looking at it, you could see people saying, "Oh, I gotta see." That. Is the uh, the last days yeah. of John Lennon, and I always wonder. Uh, maybe you can't, you know, tell me the, the whole truth, but here, but how much work did you do compared to how much work James Patterson did? Be honest. Well- well, I'll say that, you know, Patterson reached out to our agent, Dave and I, and uh, he asked us, come up with uh, five ideas for a nonfiction book. So I wrote um, five treatments over a weekend, including the Lennon treatment, which was 70 pages. I just wrote it on a Saturday, kicked ass, sent it to my agent. He sent it to Patterson and his people. And within, I think, 48 hours, we had a deal. Um, the book in the manuscript that Dave and I worked on is a deep dive, man. It, it, I, I hope that version of the book actually makes it to market at some point during our careers because it was a fascinating ride. But when you're working with somebody like Jim, Jim's got a formula. You know, I mean, his readers pick up a book at the airport, read it for two hours, and then toss it in the trash when they get to their destination. <laughs> and that's made him the most popular best-selling author in the world. So, you know, he's got a strategy. We had to meet him halfway uh, on a lot of that stuff. We did all the research. I interviewed Paul McCartney. Um, we got we were the only uh, journalists to get access to Mark David Tripp Chapman's criminal case file in 30 years. Uh, 60 Minutes didn't get it. Um, NBC News didn't get it. Dave and I got it. And a lot uh, how, of how, how does that how does that work? How is that possible? How is luck? That <laughs> we uh, we emailed the uh, the prosecutor's office, and uh, we must have gotten an intern that responded and said, "It's going to take me about two weeks to collate all these files because they're in basements all over New York City." And so we're waiting for two weeks, thinking we're going to get another email saying access denied. But we got an email saying, all right, you've got 24 hours, uh, you know, to, to look at these files. So we took the Acela that day down in New York. We get to the prosecutor's uh, building in lower Manhattan, and we've got a, a box of, uh, of files, including the original arrest warrant from December 8th, 1980, with Chapman's uh, signature on it. It's not a copy. It's the actual arrest warrant. You're holding it in your hands, and you're, you're holding history in your hands, and it just makes it m- that much more real to us. What was the most uh, surprising thing? Or was there a twist? Was there a gotcha sure. moment? Uh, well, tell me. A couple things. Um, 
first of all, the killer, this wasn't a random act. You know, uh, uh, Chapman has been portrayed as somebody who wanted to be famous, and that's why he killed John Lennon. That's part of it. But Chapman had uh, Lennon in his eye, in his crosshair since he was 17 years old, and he stumbled across that article that Lennon, you know, gave this quote where, you know, Beatles are more popular than Jesus. And that was just John being John, and he wasn't being, you know, blasphemous or anything like that. He was talking about the irony of Beatlemania and why kids are going into the record stores as opposed to, you know, crowding the Church of England. So Chapman sees this, and Chapman had just joined this um, kind of religious sect in Georgia, and he's 17 years old, and he starts to play on his guitar, Imagine John Lennon is Dead. And for the next decade, he goes about the course of doing that. And Lennon doesn't know that's that's out there somewhere. And people always wonder why John Lennon became a recluse in the Dakota, the um, you know apartment condo building that he and Yoko lived in. That's because John was targeted by a terrorist group from Puerto Rico, and then in the late 1970s, that threatened to kidnap his uh, wife and child, Sean Lennon, and uh, tried to uh, uh, negotiate a, a fee. $200,000 is what the terrorists were looking for. So John had to work with the FBI, the very bureau that was trying to get John deported years earlier, to see if they could find, track down this group. And they never could, but they got one last letter from the group, and the group said, we don't want your money anymore. We want you to be part of our uh, mission. So if you go out to the cafe, if you go out to uh, Central Park, we're just going to kill you. We're just going to blow you up. And uh, any collateral damage that happens, that's on you. So John had to retreat to protect his family and to protect everybody else from these people that were out there. Uh, did he have bodyguards around him? <laughs> he had one bodyguard, and that uh, guy's name was Doug McDougal. Uh, Doug had passed by the time we wrote the book, but I interviewed Doug's wife. Doug was a former FBI agent who was chasing um, Soviet spies all over New York in the 1970s. And he is hired by Yoko to protect Sean Lennon. But at the time, Yoko was really into numerology and new age thinking. So as Doug is walking little Sean through Central Park, Yoko says, well, you have to take these certain streets on these certain days. And McDougal says, no, you know, I don't want to establish a pattern for the kidnappers or the killers. You do that. This kid's going to be delivered to you with his ear in a box. And the FBI agent ultimately quit um, and wanted to come back to uh, protect John Lennon, but he never uh, got that opportunity to do so. I would have been telling you about Shake Concrete for a long, long time. Today, we're sitting with the man who makes it all work, the man in charge of the whole place, my brother-in-law, Greg. Hey, Greg, seems like business is booming at Shake Concrete. We're cranking that out, Jerry. Well, uh, I, I, I'm just wondering, what's holding you back these days? We could use some good help. You need people? We need people. How many people do you need? At least 20 people. 20? Well, what kind of people? We have positions driving trucks, working in the production plants, estimating engineers, all kinds. you need any podcasters? You know, we do have the precast podcast. <laughs> well, I, I think it seems like a great place to work, as I tell people. It's a family atmosphere. You guys are good to your people. There's a great gym here at the headquarters. Uh, what's holding you back? Why can't you find people? Besides being to work on time, you have to pass the drug test. Ooh, you have to pass a drug test. That's all it takes. All right, if people want to uh, come see you, they want to talk, what do they have to do? 
bunch of ways. They can, if they want to be a team member, they can go to shakeconcrete.com, fill out an application. They can come to our, any of our offices. We got four locations. They can call me up directly. They can email jobs at shakeconcrete.com. And you'll give them a hat? And you'll we'll give them a hat. Hats. Yep. All right, sounds good. Shakeconcrete.com. I saw a really cool, uh, nice cafeteria here. Can we go have lunch? Oh, absolutely. We got empanadas and chicken. <laughs> Excellent. I don't know what they are, but I'm going to go have an empanada. How did you get McCartney to sit down with you? Luck reached out to his uh, publicist and and uh, never thinking I'd hear anything back. Well, you know, Paul talked. And the one thing I loved about that conversation with Paul was that uh, he's talking about the last time he talked to John Lennon, and they didn't talk about musical composition or their rivalry or their brotherhood. They talked about baking bread for their families because there was a bread shortage in England because the bakers were all on strike. So John had been baking bread for his young son for five years, and um, and these two just had a wonderful conversation. Paul didn't realize at the time that it would be the last one. And he he did you sit like have lunch or was it a phone call? It was no, it was it was all, it was all via email. He was bouncing around from New York to London, and he was on tour at the uh -huh. time. But uh, he took the time to you know these weren't publicist answers. This was a back and forth that Paul and I had that you know I, I still have it hanging up on my wall. Uh, before we get to your uh, live show, your first, I believe, right? This is the yeah, first, this first, is the, uh, first live show with an ensemble cast, for sure. Ooh, ooh, uh, we'll get to some of the uh, cast members, but you got a new book uh, coming out this summer. And again, I look at it and say, how was this story not told already? How is Casey Sherman always the first guy to find, to discover <laughs> these, stumbled across these stories? We know you started... Uh, your career investigating the Boston Strangler because yep. you thought your aunt, correct? Your aunt Rose. Was, correct. Yeah, was my aunt was the 19 year old last victim of the Strangler case. And we have two competing DNA uh, examinations. One that excludes the alleged Boston Strangler, Albert Salvo, another one that includes him. So, you know, there, there are still questions 50 years after that case. And then I look back at the Helltown story, which is a story about a young serial killer in Provincetown in 1969. It's five months before Charles Manson and his disciples go on the rampage in Hollywood. And this is what this serial killer did in Provincetown. He was luring young uh, women into the woods, murdering them, dismembering them, and then burying them in shallow graves. He also had a, uh, a set of groupies called his disciples because he was a hippie messiah at the time. So, you know, they, they pretty much were working in conjunction with each other. And my way into the story is how two writers, Kurt Vonnegut and Norman Mailer, become obsessed with this case. Both are living on Cape Cod at that time, and both are jockeying from position to get the story of, of this serial killer right, and they go about doing that. Wow. What, what, what's the killer's name? Tony Costa. Tony Costa. And you say, you told me, uh, serial killer on the Cape, obviously, a long time ago, and it's, it's pretty graphic and gory, but it's the prelude, prelude to the Manson murders. Is it just a coincidence? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure because the, the Costa case was very notorious when it happened and it made national and international headlines. A lot of that had to do with the uh, district attorney who called the serial killer, the Cape Cod vampire. Uh, 
um, were he was putting stories in the newspaper uh, that weren't true. I mean, the the murders themselves were heinous enough. They didn't have to uh, uh, you know accentuate these murders, but they did. And I've covered you know so many homicides in my career. I've never seen anything as brutal as this one. I've got a stack of autopsy photos and crime scene reports that I look at and I have to look away um, because they're so heinous. In 1969, you've got you've got Costa, you've got Manson, you've got Chappaquiddick. The DA in the Costa case is also the DA that mucked up the grand jury uh, in the Chappaquiddick case. So I do a deep dive into that as well. And all these historical figures kind of coming, uh, you know, together um, with with this storyline. It's pretty fascinating. You do you, and you think? Uh, do you leave it open ended that maybe it inspired Manson? I leave it open ended. I, oh, I I think Costa. I know for fact was disappointed with the Manson murders because it took him off the front page. He wanted to be immortal. He wanted to be who Charlie Manson ultimately became. And when Manson came around and the victims were Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring and you know it happened in the middle of Hollywood, uh, it just knocked this. Provincetown murder case off the map. And Costa later uh, committed suicide at Walpole State Prison. I've got thousands of documents um, from the case, including his unpublished manuscript. Costa wrote a 300-page manuscript while he was incarcerated at Walpole shortly before he committed suicide, allegedly. There's also a and, and you that, have this you have I a three hundred page manuscript by a serial killer and yeah. it has never seen the light of day. Never seen the light of day. So I worked that into the narrative of this story. And if you recall, you know, the infamous lady in the Dunes case, young woman buried um in shallow sand in Provincetown with her body parts cut off. Now, you know, you, you remember and I remember people are saying, Oh, that was Whitey Bulger. It wasn't Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger didn't have the stomach for that stuff. Whitey Bulger waited for other people to commit those murders, and then he would extract the pull teeth pull, and do what Pull he the did. teeth out, right. Yeah. And so, so but, Costa, Costa was sentenced to life at Walmart? He was sentenced to life in prison. He commits suicide, and then a month later, the lady in the dunes happens. And I, I'm making the plausible theory that it was his disciples who uh-huh. killed this woman to appease Costa's restless spirit. That sounds awesome, and that's out. And that's out in July, and yeah, uh, July twelfth. Great summer beach read, and when, when, especially if you're on the Cape in yeah. the dunes. And uh, when does the movie come out? How does that work? I'm well, the, I'm working with Robert Downey Jr. and his production company, Team Downey, right now uh, to adapt it for a limited series. So we just uh, landed our director, who we're really excited about, and we're going to be shopping this to HBO and other entities uh, right after Easter. So we should know very shortly on whether or not we've got a a project that we think is going to be greenlit. And I would think that we want to get this into production very quickly. So by this time next year, knock on wood, cameras are rolling on Cape Cod. When when a guy like Downey is interested or his company, does that mean he's thinking about playing the lead or playing a role? Well, you know, we debated, uh, you know, Robert playing Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, Robert was like, I met Kurt Vonnegut on the set of Back to School. Oh, I was going to say, I could have, I 
I know I love that movie. I could have put that together. That was Robert Vonnegut. <laughs> yeah. When he's no boy, Kurt Vonnegut writes the English papers for That's Rodney right. when Rodney's in school, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. plays his son's friend. And this is before he was Robert Downey. Because yeah, exactly. A goofy punk. Yeah. Uh, it was a. It's a very strange role, but so he might be Vonnegut. That I mean, that's I mean, you know, we're we're talking about it right now. Whether or not Robert's too old, I think he could nail that role, and he'd be my you know t- top of the leaderboard. We're also talking about people like Joaquin Phoenix, and wow. you know, either or, it's going to be a you know an A list actor that takes on this responsibility in the Vonnegut role. As for Tony Costa, we want an unknown. We want this guy to be so creepy and charismatic that if you remember uh, the Helter Skelter miniseries in the 70s, Stephen Railsback played Charlie Manson. Never got an acting role again in his career. He couldn't play the dad on Growing Pains because that's (laughs) Charlie Manson. Right, right. Well, that's the, I mean, I'm, it sounds like a great book and a great movie. All right, we will get to uh, get to uh, your show. What's called Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers. I mean, I got so many. Uh, I could talk to you all day. Why? Why do you still live in Boston? It sounds like you're a Hollywood guy now. Why, have you heard Mark Wahlberg's house is for sale? I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, you, know, you know, I'm a New England guy, and it's in my bones. I love to go out to Hollywood and you know work on projects, but I can't stay out there too long. It's it's madness. Out there and uh, New England grounds me, and this is where all the great stories are. Quite frankly, Jerry, it's you know if I'm not here, I'm not you know keeping my antenna up for these amazing stories. And with this with this show at the Wilbur Theater, we started our true crime podcast two years ago, Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers, and we do a deep dive and take people behind the scenes of our investigations. And I thought, you know what, this could be a great stage show. And what I mean by that is not just Dave and I. Um, you know, communicating with the audience what we've been through when uh, our writing assignments and investigations, but, you know, we've created an ensemble cast to portray Whitey Bulger on stage, to portray Albert DeSalvo on stage. You and I talked about, you know, when you were with um, Dino, uh, I remember we had a conversation about Bad Blood, the Franconia police shooting book that I wrote, right. you know, a decade ago. And we're, that's going to be one of the acts in this show. So that crazy Greg Floyd character, that survivalist that almost killed me in a courthouse, he's going to be on stage that night. So you have real actors. I mean, I know Gary Tangway is involved too, but you have real, actual actors. Real actors. Gary's a Gary's a, a good actor, and quite frankly, he's you know he, he's got a lot of film credits, and oftentimes he does play that uh, that anchor person or that reporter got- on the scene. This time he's playing um, a psychiatrist in the Strangler Act, and he's also playing uh, the um, apartment complex manager who. Uh, um, works with the FBI to get Whitey Bulger down from 303 uh, Princess Eugenia down to the basement. And this kid was a complete knucklehead, Boston guy, lived right next to Whitey for years, didn't recognize that Charlie Gasco was Whitey Bulger, believed that Bulger had a crush on him because Bulger used to send him gifts, like really kind of unique gifts, um, you know, to get, get him in better shape. And I think Bulger was priming this guy for a, uh, an affair. Well, um, I think, I think you may have your in with Hollywood. That could, you need to do that to be in a, <laughs> to be eligible for the Oscar. You know, it has to, you have that's to, right, that's right. 
How many different uh, scenes, skits, stories are in your uh, line? Yeah, four acts. We start with The Strangler. Then we segue to Bad Blood. Then we do um, uh, Whitey Bulger. And then end on John Lennon. So you've got John Lennon and Mark David Chapman on stage together, uh, played by actors, really for the first time in history. Um, It's going to be a unique show, to say the least. It sounds great. I, I don't know if you saw his son uh, Julian sing "Imagine" for the you know Ukrainian cause. Yeah, and yeah. I, I knew he was a singer, but oh my God, he could he could go on tour as John Lennon. He sounds exactly like him. Obviously, he looks a little bit like him. I don't know if he has uh, the work ethic, but you could have called up Julian Lennon for that role. That yeah, well, we we actually reached out to Julian um, to interview him for the for the for the book, but Julian was you know. Pay to play. I think he asked us for like a hundred grand for his interview, and it was really? like, hey, you're, not, you're not you're not that important to us, Julian. And uh, we had to move on from there. Is he? Did he inherit money? Or did we, was he cut out of the will? He was cut out of the will. You know, and and Lennon is such a complex character. I mean, he's an artist. He's a political icon. You love his music, but he was also very abrasive. So he uh, he cut out his first wife. He cut out Julian. Julian's finally getting back into the family fold now that Yoko was a firm and she's in a wheelchair and she's had several strokes. So now the younger son, Sean and Julian, have you know forged a, a brotherhood that I think has always been lacking in that relationship. So this is uh, four parts, one show at the Wilton? One show, yep. It sounds fascinating. And uh, April 20th. Tickets still available? Tickets are still available. They're going fast. Um, You know, we didn't realize how popular uh, this show could be. Um, but now uh, we, we've, we've got, obviously, the Wilbur is a big theater, so everybody will have a good seat no matter where they're sitting. And we're bringing in video. We're bringing in music. We're bringing in live actors. There's a lot of humor in the in these stories, too, Jerry, because there's always absurdist humor um, right. in these crimes, especially in the bad blood scene where you've got this, this killer, Greg Floyd, who's beating me over the uh, shoulders with a cane in the uh, bathroom of courthouse. Uh, we reenact that in a way that is, I think, pretty unique. And if this works, you go on tour. The whole yeah. new, uh, yeah, whole um, new revenue, a whole new revenue stream for Casey Sherman Inc. I got two kids in college, Jerry. I need every revenue stream I, I can, and uh, but I think there's a hunger for it. I think you look at the popular popularity of true crime right now, right, right. especially coming out of the pandemic. Everybody likes to play armchair detective. And I'd like to bring the show to Broadway, to L.A., to London. You know, we're talking about notorious historic figures here that um, will elicit some type of response from anybody that comes and sees the show. Well, like I said, great idea, Lynn. That's that's your thing. You come up with great ideas. What happens after Helltown? You, you must have something in there. Uh, Dave and I are working on a, a project together. Um, it's called The Cobble Connection. And it's about the massacres of nine U.S. airmen at the uh, Kabul Air Base in 2009. If you recall that story, it was that at first the the worst um, attack of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan at the time in one place. Blamed on a lone gunman, radicalized colonel in the Afghani Air Force. It's anything but what it seems. This was a gangland hit, Kabul style. How do you get that idea? Just give me a hint. How, how does that come on your... We're in a position now, Jerry, where people reach out to us. 
um, which has been great. So we have to vet every story or every story idea that comes uh, across our, our tables. And uh, we landed on uh, this and we met the father of one of the victims, a guy that uh, is a lawyer from the Whisper area who's been dogging this case for well over a decade. And the document, the documentation that he's provided us is just overwhelming. What, what's, it, what do you call, what's it called again? What's it going to be called? The Kabul Connection. The Kabul Connection. Another brilliant idea from Casey Sherman. Well, I'd, uh, uh, good luck with the, with the live show, Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers at the Wilbur Theater and with Helltown, which comes out in July. Good beach reading about women who were slaughtered and buried in on the beach. So as you're laying there, you, you know, you never know, you never know, but uh, it sounds like uh, you are rolling Casey Sherman. I appreciate the time and uh, good luck with everything. No, much appreciated, Jared. Love your show. So tickets are still available for that show at the Wilbur. Go to wilburtheater.com and uh, hopefully we'll see, uh, you know, a lot of people at the theater that night. Got it. Sounds great. Sounds fascinating. But uh, Casey Sherman, thanks very much. Talk to you Thank again you. down the road. We will talk to you this summer. How's that one? Yeah, yeah, you bet. I'd love to come back when on. Helltown sure. comes out. Sounds great. Thanks, Casey. All right, I'm soon. I'm soon uh, heading to the airport, maskless. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do, Craig. I'm going to do. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to go without even bringing a mask in my pocket. You think I'm going to get away with getting on the plane and flying without being ordered by one of these? Uh, Powered drunk stewardesses to mask up. Is it effective immediately or is it one of those yes, like effective two- immediately? Okay, because a lot of times they I go think, in three weeks. Uh, I know, I know. That's happen. what they usually do. I'm well, I'm pretty sure that plane full of uh, you know religious nuts were saying they they, they took the masks off. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I, you know what, I'm I'm not a fool. If they say put it on or you can't fly, I'm going to put it on, right? And I will, and most people will. And then one loose cannon somewhere will fight them and they'll drag them off and the media will love it and say, see what happens when you let people choose whether they want to wear a mask or not. But it'll be, there'll be some incidents. She's right. Kelly O'Donnell's right. There'll be some friction, some conflict, but so what? Freedom comes with a price, Craig. Freedom isn't free. You can quote me on that. We will see how it goes once more. Thank you to Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell. God bless you, woman. Thanks to everybody for watching. Listen, thanks to our friend Casey Sherman. Check out his show. Do I have the date? Tomorrow night, Wednesday night, April 20th, 7.30 at the Wilbur Theater. Thewilbur.com. Sounds really cool. Ooh, the price is only 30 bucks. 32.52. That's not bad in his day and age. Not bad but at it all. sounds really interesting. And if nothing else, you can heckle, you can boo Gary Tangway. You know, <laughs> that's worth 30 bucks in and of itself. That's right. All right, that'll do it for today. Good job, Ironhead. I'm Jerry Callahan. This is The Callahan Show, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. Here tonight, shaking my head and thinking something ain't right. Is it just me? Am I losing my mind? Am I standing on the edge of the end of time? Am I the only one? Tell me. Like the show? Leave a five-star review on Apple and Spotify.